0: Hello and welcome to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM. We are available... Yes, beyond the FM dial. You can listen to us live at our website, www.radionorthland.org. And that's also, if you miss us live and in the moment, you can listen to archived episodes. We have some uh, many, many years of episodes I've uh, put in the Rasslin' Memories page. uh, You can hear from legends like Dick Byer, Billy Robinson, uh, Nick Bockwinkle, one of Nick Bockwinkle's last interviews. It's all there, radionorthland.org. And another way to listen to us live, if you don't want to go to the website where we stream is to check out the free app from TuneIn. Hey, man, free is great, especially when you got an app like TuneIn uh, with all the great stations. But ours are all in there. Well, yes, it's wrestling memories time once again. Had to get out the plugs and all that dub uh, business. The intro is done. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my co-host down there deep in the heart of Texas, which uh, this time of year... You're finally catching a break down there in the mobile studio. You're not uh, feeling, uh, you're not sizzling, I guess. Uh, you're, you're actually into some bearable temps this time of year. Big welcome to Mr. Michael McCurdy, the grizzled vet.
1: That's right, man. Fall in Texas. The the temperatures are dropping. You, And of course, you know, at the time of this recording, today's Thursday, but uh, I'm celebrating, you might say, my 48th anniversary walking this earth. So, in other words, it's my birthday, so... What a great way to spend a birthday and getting to talk a little bit of rational Memories.
0: Hey, he's still breathing and he's how old was that? What was that age number? What was that number? What was that day served? Forty eight.
1: Forty eight. Forty eight year
0: old man. See um I, I, I feel you make me feel young. Thanks, man. But anyway, you're you're here and you get Appreciate to talk. It. Yeah, hey, yeah, hey, hey, happy birthday. <laughs> and all serious with all that serious <laughs> shit I'll... With all seriousness, yeah, happy birthday, man. But anyway, uh, this is like uh, you, you, you treated yourself and you treated us here, the listeners, to a very cool guest. I mean, I I've, i remember watching him on WCW television. I also remember uh, following him, uh, hearing about him in the magazines while later learning that he was part of the Mighty Yankees tag team. But he's from Flo- hes wrestling in Florida. He was trained by Malenko's man. This guy is a great guest, and he's also one hell of a Facebook uh, view, if you give him a chance. He's got some good stuff. And man... We, we got so much to talk about with him. I'm going to let you do the intro, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited this to get this whole conversation underway.
1: Well, I think he kind of did the intro yourself, but yeah, you're right. You know, he was a uh, tag team, Jerry Gray, the mighty Yankees works, Florida, Memphis. I remember him from the WCW days and the laundry list of talent that this man got to work in the ring with, you know, and like you said, Facebook, you know, always, he's always got some entertaining stuff going up there. Yes, Andy's a collector. Andy's a collector. We're going to talk about that as well. So you know what? Let's get down to it. Let's bring on our guests on this week's edition of Wrestling Memories, and now none other than Mr. Bob Cook. Bob, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, I appreciate you having me on. You got it in under the wire. I'm 57. Most wrestlers don't live that long, so we're getting lucky.
1: Well, you know, you know, they're they're they're, they're lasting a little bit longer. Some of them nowadays, but you know. You've got to be proud, you know, they hit the 57, but, you know, like I said, you had a hell of a career going through, uh, you know, Florida, you worked at Memphis, you know, WCW, WCW is where I know you from, but, you know, let's kind of go back to the beginnings a little bit, we talked about it, you were trained with, by, uh, you know, Boris Malenko, the great Malenko, Um, let's talk a little bit about that, about how you kind of, what what got your interest in wrestling, and how you got started with uh, training with Malenko, and, you know, kind of the early days.
2: Well, I moved from Michigan to Florida in 1975, and I met a kid named Dale Dibler, which isn't important, but I remember the name. That's kind of important at my age. Did I remember anything? <laughs> but uh, we were playing basketball one day, and he said, hey, I want to go home and watch wrestling." And I said, why do you want to go home and watch Rash? What, what do you want to watch that crap for? I was only like 11 years old. And I went home and watched it with him. I fell in love with it instantly. Gordon Soly was calling the action. Terry Funk was going crazy. And from that moment on, I wanted to be a wrestler.
1: Now, you know, you mentioned, you said there, Florida is and all that solely, obviously one of the, uh, you know, greatest voices of professional wrestling right up there. You know, I would say him first, you know, Jim Ross, a close second on that one. But, you know, what was it about, you know, what you got to see on TV and what you saw at that time, what you got to listen to? What was it that that hooked you and, you know, who were some of the guys that you followed and gave you the inspiration that you wanted to go on to do this?
2: i think what hooked me was just the chaos it was something that i had never seen before it seemingly had no rules they had the most outrageous characters they had everything that you would think a kid would want or anybody would want in the form of entertainment comedy drama violence revenge i mean it was good versus evil and the guys in that era like joel duke and of course dusty Rhodes, just turned baby face and terry funk was a world champion and they all just had larger-than-life personalities. And when you're a kid and you eventually go to the matches and see them in person, they were larger-than-life human beings. And they really were. But as a kid, they were even more so. So you're more in awe of the fact that they're on TV and then you see them in person and you're able to actually get autographs from the good guys and get shut down by the bad guys. And I don't know. It was just something that just hooked me at the, at the very first time I saw it.
1: So – how did you get? How did you get started training? How did you uh, meet up with Malenko, and how did all that start?
2: I got lucky, one hundred percent lucky. My mind was that I wanted to be a wrestler. I had no idea how to do it. You couldn't Google it back then. They didn't have a wrestling school in the backyard of anybody around my area or anywhere else in that you know era. But I used to go to the. I moved to Tampa with a friend in nineteen eighty one after I graduated from high school with the idea I was going to be a wrestler. That's where they taped Florida Championship Wrestling at a place called the Sportatorium. And at the time, I didn't know this, but I went to the Sportatorium for the TV taping, and I talked to an old wrestler named Gordon Nelson, who was at that point a referee, and he still wrestled once in a while, set the rings up. But I asked him, I said, how do you get in wrestling? And I was only an 18-year-old kid, and he said, well, you know, you got to be in really good shape, and you come in for a tryout, which in those days meant that they would stretch you, beat you up, discourage you from being a wrestler. The next week, I went to the Armory in Tampa, where they had wrestling like every Tuesday night, for 30 years and I came out of the army and there was a flyer on my car that said, become a pro wrestler, the great Malenko wrestling Academy, travel the world, make big money, become a TV star. Boom. Called it the next day, showed up the next week. And that's how it started.
1: Become a TV star, make the big money. Um, Who are some of the guys? None of that happened, but it, you know, but it looked good on the flyer, right? It looked great on the flyer. And I still have the flyer actually. Oh, that's great um who were some of the guys you got to train with uh during that time
2: uh fred altman al perez uh da, 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 frankie lancaster he wasn't that big of a name a nice guy you know <laughs> but the most important people we got to train with was the great malenko himself who was just fantastic and of course dean and joe malenko everybody knows who dean is a lot of people don't know who joe is but he was a fantastic uh wrestler as well and they would come by to school all the time and we'd learn from them and Carl Grot Gotz, the legendary Carl Gotz would come by and slap us around once in a while and prove to us that hey, we're not that tough. We really aren't. And he is, but he liked to show us <laughs> show us he was. But it was just the school itself wasn't the greatest location. It was the back of an old mattress factory where they made mattresses in the front still, but the in the back room they had two rings set up, a big one, a small one, what they call a low boy or whatever. There was holes in the walls, holes in the floor, rats running around. And I don't mean the kind of rats. Most wrestlers know, you know what I'm saying? Wink, wink. But the training itself was fantastic. And the great Malenko was just one of the greatest human beings I've ever been honored to know.
1: Now, going into this, you know, you've, you've been watching it on television. You know, you said you were hooked when when you first saw it as a child. Now you're 18. You get a chance to uh, train. What was it like getting into between the ropes and, and doing the training? Because, you know, we hear stories that, guys are like, oh, it's the greatest thing I've ever done, and other guys will tell you that, you know, they were so sore from the tips of their toes to the top of their head.
2: Oh, I was definitely sore, but Malenko didn't do what a lot of guys did. He didn't beat you up. He didn't prove to you that, you, you know, he was tougher than you. He taught you how to be a pro wrestler. He didn't he didn't, like, beat you up for six months and then just before you go out smarten you up for your first match. He smartened us up the very first day. He told us exactly what wrestling was. It's a work. It's a show. The point is to make it look good or make it real, look real without being real, look stiff without being stiff. The art of the business, you know, is to make it look real without being real. And he told us that from the very beginning, and we learned from there. You know, we he taught us how to get in the ring properly, how to get out, you know, lock up, and all the moves. But he didn't beat you up and stretch you for six months, and then eventually tell you, "Oh, by the way, all that was not I'm not necessary." And this is what it's really about. No, he told us from the very beginning, which I appreciated because I was just an 18-year-old kid. I don't want to get beat up. The business itself beats you up. The training itself beats you up. You don't have to really get beat up to be You know, to do something that's a work.
1: Yeah, you know, your training with Malenko a lot. You're talking about back then. It wasn't uh... You know, the schools weren't prevalent. You couldn't Google anything like that. We're going to take a little sidestep for a second. Um, Looking at today, you know, now it seems like there's, you know, a wrestling school and, well, everywhere you look. You throw a quarter and, you know, five feet and there's a wrestling school. Um, Do you think that's a good thing to have that much mini wrestling schools prevalent? Because obviously some of these are not good trainers.
2: No, it's not good at all. What it is is it spreads the disease of guys who are half-trained and never properly learned to begin with, and that just spreads that disease. But it, but the problem is a lot of the veterans, the older guys, are, are dying off or have lost interest or can't make money being a trainer because there was really never any money in training, at least back you know Malinko's day. Uh, but it's even harder now, I'm sure, to make money. Because people don't want to pay to do anything, right? Especially nowadays, everything's free, so they think everything should be free. And I used to, I tried to train some people here in, in where I live, and you know, getting people to show up and pay to hurt themselves is not—it's <laughs> a little bit difficult. But no, I don't think it's good at all to have that many schools. There's a few. There's a lot here in Florida too. There's a, some good ones, but you know, when you see some of the talent in Florida, you wonder where they got
1: trained. You can say the same thing here in Texas. There's a lot of times you look at guys and you kind of wonder about that. Because, yeah, there are a lot of schools out there. I mean, there are, you know, legitimate ones. But, you know, it just seems like there's too many coming out now where there's guys like, oh, hey, I wrestled, you know, two years. And I wrestled a match against, uh, you know, Disco Inferno in a gymnasium so I can train people. That seems to unfortunately kind of be the mindset nowadays.
2: Yeah, or you can just go on YouTube and watch videos like this. Some guy has a ring in his backyard because he bought it on highspots.com or monsterrings.com with his income tax money one year, and he's showing you, this is how you properly throw a punch, and you just shake your head and, please, don't watch this video and copy what this guy's telling you. But
1: that's the new world we live in. So I tried training when I was about 19 years old. I thought I'd give it a try. I wanted to be a wrestler, and after like a week, I decided, you know what? I'm going to look in different avenues. So I started getting into writing and photography and stuff like that. So that was kind of my thing because I decided that it was a little too rough for me.
2: (laughs) That's a smart decision because I'm 57 years old and both my knees are shot. My hips are shot. My back is in pain constantly. And it's all things that are going to have to be addressed eventually. Either that was either that was a bullet to the head or eventually go to a doctor, which I haven't been to in 20 years, but eventually it'll have to be taken care of one way or the other, but none of it would be, Uh, going on if I wouldn't have done wrestling but I wouldn't want to change that even though I was never a big star it was the best time of my life and I don't regret anything maybe a couple of things but
1: we won't talk about that well we might ask a question about it later but um, (laughs) (laughs) how long did you train with uh with Malenko before you you had your first match
2: I'd say probably four months or so and I used to go every I used to live well I lived in Tampa like I said for a brief time um, to become a wrestler. And then I decided to move back home because the person I moved to Tampa with didn't want to to, continue going to the school he was going to. And so I went back home and I had to drive 100 miles plus back and forth two times a week and sometimes three times a week on the weekends, every Tuesday and Thursday. And that was back before I-75, which is the interstate here in Florida was open. So you had to go through all the small towns and stuff. It took like you know two and a half hours to get there, two and a half hours to get back. I didn't regret it, but I'm just saying that's what I was I, – I consider myself pretty dedicated to do that. I never missed a, a class either because Malenko had that ability to make you want to learn each time. So when you went there, you didn't leave dejected or, or feel like you're not learning. He made you want to come back the next week.
1: So what was your, who was your first match with? You know, what do you remember uh, most about You know, getting through, walking through that curtain the first time and stepping into the ring in front of a crowd to actually wrestle your first match?
2: Well, it wasn't much of a curtain. It was at, actually at a Moose Lodge in Tampa. The ring was set up by a lake, and people sat around the ring in lawn chairs, and I got paid 20 bucks on all the barbecue we could eat. And it was a show that Malinka would do little shows around the area to give us experience in front of a crowd in the beginning. And it was just one of Malenko's shows, and that's where I had my first match. I was in the the first match with a guy named Will. I don't remember his last name. He wore a mask. But we practiced the entire 10-minute match at the school for weeks. It's the only match I ever practiced, you know, from beginning to end, every aspect of it. But that's the only one I ever did that with. There's pictures of it on my Facebook, blurry, bad pictures taken with, like, a 110 camera. Remember those? And you had to actually go and get the film
1: developed. Oh, no before you could just take out your phone and go click and have like a, you know, 18 gigabyte, uh, you know, memory mem- image. Sorry, I'm stumbling. I'm always here. Um, so you're stepping in the ring, you know, you're wrestling that first match, you're in front of the crowd. You know what kind of what's going through your head, you know, what are, you know, the nerves, the excitement, you know, just, you know, a little bit about what's going on during that. Cause you know, I've heard from many people their first match it, sometimes they say it's just a blur of what happened.
2: You know, I don't remember a lot about it, but I do, i was nervous every time i wrestled i always thought that if you were nervous it meant you cared if you go out there and just like "Eh, i'm not nervous i don't care you know i always cared you know i cared i I was i cared more that i didn't hurt the person i was wrestling or i didn't look like an idiot more than i do normally but i cared and i was always nervous before i went out but once you get out there you know and you just the bell rings and it goes away but literally you know all day long if i have to wrestle that night I'll, i'll be like just thinking about it and closer it gets, you know, frequent trips to, trips to the restroom, and you know.
1: I had a I had a wrestler once tell me that, you know, if you're, if you're behind the curtain and you're not nervous, then it's time for you to just hang up your boots and quit because you need right, to be like, you know. Yeah, that's what I'd say too. Now, once you got, you know, you got that first match under your belt, who are some of the guys that, you know, you wrestled, you know, on a regular basis or got that chance to wrestle uh, in the early months of your career?
2: Well, you know, it's funny. Like I said, the the first match was at a Moose Lodge, twenty bucks. First opening match. The second match was like a week later, at a high school gym where there was like a lot of people there. I got paid fifty bucks for that, and I was in the main event with a guy named Luis Estea, who he wore a mask at that time, and we were wrestling the Dean and Joe Malenko. So, but that's because Malenko, you know, I, mean, I can I can say this proudly. He liked me, and he thought I had at least potential, or then you know, I was good enough to be on his shows and and higher up on the card. But, you know, that's why I was in the main event, but doesn't matter why I was there, you know, the week later. And it was, you know, but a lot I wrestled Al Perez early in both of our careers. He started a little earlier than I did, but I'm, I'm sure you know who Al Perez is. He used to be a star in Texas. Oh, yeah. Yep. But, um, yeah, I wrestled him on a few of Michael's shows. And, uh, you know, not a whole lot of big name guys then. Because once Malinko trained certain guys, they were able to, like like Fred Ottman, he went on to become Tugboat and Typhoon and Shockmaster, and and he didn't stick around too long. He went to, like, I think he went to Texas and Memphis.
1: Yeah, he started with Florida. He was, uh, oh, God, Big Steel Man, I think it was, and then he kind of moved on, like you said, you know, Shockmaster, Typhoon, Tugboat, all that, Um, you know. What was that going through? You know, like I said, you mentioned Al Perez, you mentioned uh, Frankie Lancaster. For some of the listeners, I believe that was Frankie, the thumper Lancaster. Uh, he wrestled here in Texas as well. Uh, you know, Al Perez, obviously a name here in Texas. But, you know, as you're working with these guys, you know, and they're moving up the ranks and you're seeing them going, uh, are you still in Florida? You know, are you following them? I mean, because, you know, they're moving up. You know, are you seeing your opportunity to, you know, the guys you trained with? And are you being able to move along with them?
2: I mean, I really didn't pay attention to what they were doing. I was just concentrated on myself. And, you know, when you get booked on shows back in those days, obviously it's not like today, but you would get booked on a show and someone would like what you did. And they'd say, hey, I know a guy who's booked shows here and there. And you just kind of network your way into more shows and kind of get a name for yourself. And I got lucky when it came to getting to wrestle for Championship Wrestling from Florida in 86. I just happened to be at Malenko School on a Sunday morning when a guy named Louis Estea, who would come by once in a while and train with us and work on Michael shows, but he also worked for Championship Wrestling from Florida, and he said, "Hey, we need somebody for the Eddie Graham Sports Complex tonight. Who wants to do it?" And I was like, uh, I'll do it," you know, because that was like the, every Tuesday, every Sunday night stop for the Championship Wrestling from Florida was in Orlando, so I had to drive all the way back home and get my stuff. When I trained at the school, I always brought my boots and knee pads, but I never brought my trunks. I didn't train in my trunks, so I drove all the way home, which was a hundred plus miles. And then all the way to Orlando, which was like three and a half hours, to do that first show. That's how I got in championship wrestling from Florida. Kind of lucky
1: Who did you wrestle that night?
2: Jerry Gray, actually. And that was the first time I met Jerry. And I remember in Orlando, you could, like, talk, sneak around to the other dressing room. You couldn't do that in most of the Florida towns. They were separated, which was, you know, the way it should have been. But Orlando was, they were on opposite sides of the, of the building, but there was a big curtain. And Jerry and I, the first time I met him, we're talking a few things over the mat. He didn't know me from Adam, and then we're I say, well, let's do this. He's like, yeah, okay. And then he's like, can you do that? Are you sure you can do that? You know, because he didn't know me. But we had a really good match, and we've been friends ever since. And like the next week, I was asked to do TV, and that's how that just started. And then I was able to work for him until they folded a couple years later.
1: Now, like, and, the, you know, can't well, well, yeah. Now, what was that like? You know, like I said, you know, you're training, you know, with Malenko. You got your free matches. You know, now championship press from Florida. You're on television. At that time, you know, still territories were still kind of a thing. You know, and Florida was a big, you know, area to work in. What was it like getting the chance to uh, work television at that time?
2: Oh, that was great. Well, I'd worked television before that. Malenko had got a – found a couple money marks over the years. I think it was in 82 he started a television show called I called IW – W A wrestling which also which featured you know his sons and him and and got to work that's where i first worked tv and then he did an, another show a couple other shows and then there was another show in florida called iwa wrestling which was run by billy blue rivers and uh beverly shade and i worked for that tv which michael was associated with that as well a lot of big stars were with them Mo- fabulous moolah mr wrestling too i got to work with him which was awesome Terry Orndorff, which was Paul Orndorff's brother, and a bunch of other guys, Bugsy McGraw, Tony Marino. But the first time I ever wrestled for Florida Wrestling was incredible in my own childhood memory mind, because when I went home and saw it that next weekend, having Gordon Soley call a match I was in was almost like, is this real, you know?
1: Now you mentioned a name there. Uh, she's been a guest on our show before. Uh, she's a friend of mine. I see her at the Hall of Fame every year, and that's it. You said you got to work uh, promote with uh, Beverly Shade. You know what was oh, it like yeah, getting lady. to work with getting to work for her? Because at that time he didn't have a lot of uh, of female promoters.
2: Well, they were great people, and just a lot of fun working with them. We had, uh, like I said, Bug- when I first worked with them, uh, Bugsy McGraw I think was booking the shows. And Bugsy was had me managed by Ox Baker, which was really cool for me because I was a you know, big Ox Baker fan when I was a kid. Scared of him when I was a real kid, but um grew to appreciate him more once I learned more about the business. But being able to be managed by him as a young kid, probably 22, 23 years old, was awesome. And that was all because of Beverly and Bugsy and Malenko. Angela Poffel was there then.
1: Yeah, I met Ox Baker at a, I met Ox Baker at Cauliflower Alley years ago. Uh, You know, funny story, kind of, you know, in you knowing Ox, you might get this one. You know, one of the guys commented that, you know, I look like I could be Ox's son. You know, and Ox kind of looks at me and he goes, there's no way he could be my son. I haven't seen his mother in, how old are you, kid? I'm 35. 37 years is how he put it. And I mean, the audience, everybody in the building, room just started laughing because that was Ox, you know, tough as nails in the ring. You know, you were scared to death of him. But outside the ring, you know, very nice guy. You know, I don't think a lot of people know. He had a hell of a singing voice. I don't know if he ever regaled you with any uh, songs in the locker room. But Do you oh, got an yeah. Ox Baker story you could share with us? He
2: was uh, one of the funniest guys I ever knew, actually. Hilarious guy first time I ever met him, though, he was sitting in a restroom singing some kind of song, smoking a cigar with his toenails painted. And as a a young kid, this is like the first time you're meeting this guy that always portrayed himself as a real, you know, bad guy. And here he is singing and being, you know, jovial, I guess is the word. And his toenails are painted. And he's just like, all right,
1: what's happening here? That's right, I'm going to pass the mic over to Glenn. Oh, I'm
2: sorry. I was just going to say, Ox stayed at my house about a year before he passed away. He came down, whatever year Randy Savage died, because they did a benefit show for Randy Savage. I don't know if a benefit show, a tribute show. He said not say benefit, because he was already dead. What's the benefit? But it was a tribute show to Randy, and Ox came down, and he stayed at my house. And we had so much fun. We made him watch Escape from New York with us, and he had all my neighbors over. He was, like, holding court in my living room, and everybody was just rolling. He was just so full of life.
1: All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand the microphone over to Glenn.
2: I'm sure he's got
0: a few questions for you. Did, did Ox have the opportunity to cook for you? Because he, he, he had a cookbook out, too, um, a few years yes, back. Yes, he
1: did.
2: Yeah, he had his cookbook with him, too. No, he didn't cook. We actually cooked for him. But, yeah, he talked about that, and he talked about He was going to write another one, too, I think. And But it was just hilarious. And he also, like, one of the neighbors invited him down to their house for coffee the next morning. And he went down there, and he ended up going to the wrong neighbor's house. <laughs> he went to this house of these two guys that lived there at the time, um, and he knocked down there. He's telling the story. He goes, hey, "I went down there with my coffee cup, and I knocked on their door, and, and you know, could you imagine a guy like Oxbegger? Because he looked the same, you know, until he died, knocking on your door at seven in the morning. Hey, I'm here for coffee, and they have no idea who you are. <laughs> he went thing. to the house like across the street rather than the one he was supposed to." <laughs>
0: You mentioned Jerry Gray. Uh, you and Jerry uh, teamed up, went under the masks uh, as the Mighty Yankees. How did that come together with you guys? Uh, who decided that that was uh, going to be the move for your, uh, for you two to, to go under the mask? I know Jerry. He, Jerry, uh, by the time he was in Florida, had a few years under his belt, including time working for Crockett and other other spots uh, along the uh, eastern part of the country. But what do you remember about uh, the moment you guys uh, it was decided upon that the the Mighty Yankees were going to be the tag team? You guys were going to be the mighty Yankees
2: yeah that, that definitely wasn't our idea the name but, but <laughs> it was Mike Graham and Kevin Sullivan we just showed up at I think it was Robarts Arena which was a place every month that we'd wrestle in Sarasota Florida which I'm ratt- rattling, rattling off arena names and cities most people have never heard of but and they call us and address hey we want to make you guys a tag team I'll call you the mighty Yankees because the reason they did it is because they're like both big baseball fans <laughs> so <laughs> Originally, they wanted us to be baseball players under a mask.
0: Like the pinstripe sort of thing? Change the idea.
2: That was before the Brooklyn Brawlers, or not Brooklyn Brawlers. What did they call that guy uh, with the baseball? Anyways.
0: Oh, Abe Knuckleball Schwartz?
2: <clears throat> right. I mean, that was uh, their idea before that was we were going to be under mask, but we're baseball players or something stupid, but we didn't do that. And then we got to be the Florida Tag Team champions. We beat Mike Graham and Steve Kernford for the title, who were actually the Last Florida Tag Team Champions, regardless of what the record book says, we never lost the belts.
0: Now, what no, you're a team, you're a heel team. What was you know, talk about what it was like to start to be able to, to generate heat. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, but what was it? How, how did you develop the the pension for getting people riled up? Talk about the getting the crowd riled up and and, and building your way into becoming proper heels, both you and Jerry.
2: Well, for me, I used to, like, just watch people that I thought were good heels. Like, Jerry Lawler was a fantastic heel. Terry Funk, my favorite wrestler of all time, greatest heel of all time, in my opinion. I mean, he had, of anybody I watched as a kid or went to the shows as a kid, he got in fights with fans more than anybody I can think of. Beat him up every time. Never had a problem with him, but all because they believed back in that era. So I just, I, I just like, did that. And you try to channel just being a jerk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> To, to me, being the bad guy was the most fun of all.
0: And you also uh, you, you talked about Mike Graham and Kevin Sullivan kind of helping uh, form what was the, the mighty Yankees. Uh, you also had spent, with with, uh, with Jerry, you guys uh, worked at many a match with Mike Graham and Steve Kern. Now, another Steve Kern, I, I think, is one of those guys that, I mean, more and more as the years have progressed, uh, lots of fans are getting to realize just how talented he, he was. There was also that talk that he could, it could have been him instead of Bob Backlund to run with the WWF title uh, back in the late 1970s. Into the 80s. Uh, Steve Kern, I mean, whether it was uh, in the singles or whether it was with Stan or with Mike Graham, he was just such a, a, a great professional wrestler. What was that like this as far as like getting it? Was it sort of like sitting under the learning tree, uh, working with Steve? I mean, just the, the, the art of tag team wrestling, kind of uh, picking up a few notes with him?
2: That was awesome. Steve's still a friend. I talked to him on the phone the other day. He, uh, to me, is one of the best. And that's what worked with Mike and Steve you learn something every night. Every night was just a blast. You look forward to the match there that night and you couldn't wait to do it. You know, cause back in those days you were, we were working seven nights a week. So we're basically working the same guys when you're in a program, you know, obviously with the, with the titles and different things. So we got to work with them like almost every night for a little while. And you just, you learn something every time, just even little things, you know, and, 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 Because they were both just so good, so smooth, easy, light as could be, never hurt you, never took advantage of you. And that's, you know, the best to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think Steve's one of the best. So is Mike. Oh, yeah. Underrated, if if that's the word. But I I don't think Steve liked to travel as much in those days. As far as why you wouldn't be a, I think you'd have been a great world champion.
0: Oh, I, well, I definitely agree with you on that. Uh, in your time with in Championship Wrestling from Florida, of course, it was the, uh, the years following, uh, Eddie Graham's, uh, passing and, uh, you know, the company wasn't, uh, as strong as it was at certain points and, you know, the Kayfabe era and the territories were starting to kind of show signs of wear and tear. But you got to work with some interesting folks though down there in Florida, down with the CWF and some guys that, uh, uh, you know, you're a true wrestling fan if you remember these guys. I just wanted to bring up uh, if you can share some memories of, because I, I was a big follower of the After Mags up here in Minnesota, so I read a lot about these guys, and I even saw uh, Bad News work uh, up in Stampede when we get the Canadian feed. But a couple of guys I want to talk about: uh, Bad News Allen. First of all, uh, what what do you remember of, of, of Bad News? Uh, he wasn't there for too long down in Florida, but he was down there uh, in in uh, the early part of 1987.
2: Yeah, he was a really nice guy. I got to work with him uh, on TV, and he let me get a lot of stuff in, surprisingly, because he was a you know real bad guy. N- not a bad guy, you know what I mean, but a mm-hmm. tough guy. Uh, just a nice guy, very easy to work with, very respectful to me anyways. I only speak for myself. What he did for other people, I have no idea. And that goes for everybody in the business. A lot of guys like the road warriors and different people have different things to say about working with the Steiners, but they were always cool to me.
0: Yeah. With bad news, man. Well, he was what? An Olympian. He he was a, with judo. I mean, he was a pretty, pretty yeah, interesting, like pretty interesting guy. Another guy uh, that's kind of fallen through the cracks of time. Uh, of course, he, he left us uh relatively young was Ed, the bull Gantner. I mean, he, Ed, the Bull. for, I remember reading these Florida things that he was, he, they were really bringing him in as a big thing for a while. Uh, what can you remember from, from Ed Gantner? You, you did work in the ring with him a few times, uh, what was his uh, his deal? What was his style? What can you remember of him?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't remember a whole lot about him. I don't. I don't remember, remember him hurting me. I don't think he was ever. He never really grasped it for whatever reason. I don't think he was uh, fully dedicated to becoming a wrestler. I don't know. Can't really say. I don't know what his mind was, but I mean, he wasn't a horrible worker. But he just never. And again, he, like he said, he didn't live that. Long. I don't remember how long I how young he was when he died, but you know, Florida wrestling died in late 87, I think or early 88, whenever they closed it. So I don't remember what Ed did after that. Did he go to Crockett? I don't remember.
0: I, I think he okay. just ended up retiring cause he, it really did. It may be working a few indie shots, but I don't think, uh, he, if he spent any time, if all with Crockett, uh, which is uh kind of unfortunate, uh, uh, as well, but I, I want to know, because I've heard Jerry mention this guy's name, and he, he did some stuff. I Did you ever go t- and do any of the shows in the Bahamas or work with Tyree Pride?
2: Oh, yeah, a lot of times. Tyree actually was another guy that was with Malenko at the same time I was. So, oh, yeah, I worked with Tyree a lot of times. Did actually, th- the second match I had for Championship Wrestling from Florida was with Tyree. First match was with a guy named Sean Royal. And then the we, same day, because we worked twice the same day, that, that first TV taping, and the second one was with Tyree. But I'd worked with Tyree tons of times for Malenko. Even Malenko started to do a TV show that was going to be broadcast in the Caribbean, and I was going to be the main bad guy. I had the championship. There's a picture of it on my Facebook albums, as they call them.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And uh, Tyree was the top babyface for that company they were going to do because he was the, you know, could speak the language, I should say. But, yeah, is a nice guy. I saw him maybe a couple years ago for the first time in 20-some years. We have these things called the Legends Lunches, and he showed up at one. Yeah, I, I've heard about these Legends Lunches.
0: I'm uh, friends with uh, Barry Rose, uh, to name drop. He's oh a yeah, part of it as well. And uh, you guys are kind of uh, uh, some of the guys that are kind of keeping the spirit of, of, of Florida wrestling and keeping the history alive, and I think that's really cool. How long have you been doing those luncheons?
2: Uh, they've been doing them for a little over 20 years now. Brian Blair started it along with Mike Graham, and you know how you know how they started was Gordon Sully and, and Hiro Matsuda were both sick with cancer, and so Mike and Brian, Bugsy McGraw, and Jerry Briscoe, Jack Briscoe, and some Steve Kern, and a lot of the guys from Tampa would get Gordon and Hiro together for these Legends lunches. They weren't called that in the beginning, just to kind of get their mind off of their suffering and their misery and let them talk about the old times to brighten their day basically and they just morphed into what we do now which is every three months until the virus came along but on a normal world orders we have them every three months and they just grow and grow and grow we have all kinds of great rests there
0: Oh yeah, from just listening to to some of the stuff on Barry's programs when he was when he was promoting them, I mean, you had Dory Funk Jr. Uh, There was Bob Roop was down there. I mean, there was you know Rocky Johnson before uh, the Rock passed away. It was yeah, Rocky
2: used to come every week or every month or every month every month. Sit front and center with Buddy Colt. We have Haku comes by Ted Dibiase, the Nasty Boys. Cuban Assassin, of course, Brian, Bugsy McGraw's always there, Tony Marino, uh, Joe Malenko, Steve Kern's always here, Jerry Briscoe. Okay, I'm on, a, I'm on a roll now. Who else was there? I don't know.
0: <laughs> Lassie.
2: But a lot oh, of guys. No.
0: Well, that sounds really cool. I mean, and that's awesome. I want before I get back the mic to uh, the microphone to Mister McCurdy. Uh, you, you guys, moved You guys, uh, you worked up in Memphis for a little bit uh, for a spell there. Could you talk about your experience working up 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 there? I mean, that style of wrestling, that style of fan, the Mid South Coliseum, the TV with Lance Russell and Dave Brown. What was uh, your your uh, experience like wrestling up there in Memphis?
2: It was very brief, but it was fun because I'd watched Memphis wrestling uh, and read through the magazines and some of my favorite matches ever in person here in Florida was Terry Funk against Jerry Lawler. And I'd seen their matches because they would, they brought their feud from 81 or 80 from Memphis to Florida for a loop. And it was just fantastic. So being able to wrestle at the Mid-South Coliseum was like a dream come true. When Gary and I were the Muddy Yankees in eighty eight, we were like the semi main event or close to the semi main event for the AWA tag team titles against Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond at the Mid South Coliseum, which was like one of the funnest matches I've ever had. I always loved the way that ring sounded in that building. Man,
0: and you got to work with, with with Diamond and Tanaka and and Pat could just fly, could could, could take the bumps, man. Boy, when you watch those matches, boy, he was he was something. And Paul's
2: another one that was trained by the Great Malenko
0: another Malenko connection. I know uh, Mike wants to get in and, and talk about some of the the, the work uh, you did with uh, the NWA and WCW. So I'm going to bring back Mike McCurdy to the conversation. It was a pleasure chatting with you, Bob.
2: Hey, thanks. Appreciate
0: it.
1: So um, how many years were you with uh, WCW? Uh,
2: from 87 to 94. So whatever that comes up to, seven, oh, six. Seven years, seven years, yeah.
1: Because, see, I remember, you know, like when you said, you know, not as big a name, in the 80s and all that, I remembered a lot of the, uh, you know, the guys that, you know, on the other side of the ring, you know, Barry Horowitz, you, you know, guys like, you know, Dusty Wolf, you know, Sunny Beach. I remember you guys. I loved watching a Bob Cook match. And you got to wrestle everybody in WCW at at that time. I mean, like I said in your intro, you faced a laundry list of just top-level talent in WCW. What was your run in WCW, like, getting to work, you know, TV, pretty much, well, every television, and getting to work with, you know, with these main event guys?
2: Uh, for me, it was awesome. You know, I always knew my place. You know, I never had an ego. I never had an attitude. I always showed up untied to time, did the best I could, never cared whether I won or lost. And there's a funny story. One time, you know, I got to beat Joey Mags. They did a thing in 93 or something called the Battle of the Underdogs. Oh, yeah. So they had a bunch of us losers have a match every week and they had a big meeting before the tv taping at center stage in in Atlanta and all the guys are sitting around Dusty's in a the ring they go we're gonna we're gonna shake things up tonight even Bobby Cook's gonna get a win and I said but Dusty I don't want to win he said sit down and shut up Bobby you're gonna win so I got to go in and and beat Joey Maggs who was a great guy and a great worker but for me it was just fun being there and being on the road because it was kind of like an outlaw lifestyle you know I'd leave my house on a on a Sunday and get back on a Friday and that's probably why I was so married for so many years cuz I was never
1: home. It's the best way to have a marriage by the way. <laughs> I might have to take that advice. <laughs> <laughs> now, who are some of, the, you know, who are some of the guys that you really like to work with uh, during the WCW run cuz like I said you were pretty much on like every television, everybody I remember Bob Cook matches, you know, easily. Who were some of the guys you enjoyed working with? Uh, Bobby Eaton, Ricky
2: Steamboat, Flair was awesome. Uh, Cactus Jack was a blast. Kevin Sullivan, the Road Warriors, the Steiners. uh, uh, I mean, those guys like Bobby Eaton and and Ricky Steamboat and guys like that, I mean, they were so easy and so, you know, people like, like wrestling fans today or they like them to lay it in or something. Nobody wants you to lay it in. No one ever told me, hey, hit me harder. You know, if anything, they said lighten up. Oh, man, there's so many guys trying to bring up. I think Sting was a blast. Uh, whew, I don't know. Even Norman the Lunatic was fun.
0: <laughs> what about Dustin Rhodes? Du-
2: Dustin Rhodes.
0: I got to oh, bring Dustin that Rhodes? into the conversation. Yeah, you have a very important uh, history with Dustin. I mean, Dustin today in AEW still doing his thing and looking amazing. But let's go back to your story with
2: Dustin Rhodes. That's right. I had his very first match ever for a company, what it was called florida championship wrestling not championship wrestling from florida when they closed that in 87 because of jim crockett mike graham steve curt and gordon Sully reopened florida back up in 88 with some investors or so i don't know about that but they used this on the shows jerry and i were the muddy yankees again and but i had dustin's very first match and a second match actually the first match was in i think arcadia florida they say it was in tampa that was actually a second match and it was taped for the tv and of course, I lost, but he cheated. I swear, he cheated. But yeah, Dustin was a great, great to work with. Even the first match. What's it? What's it been like to see him uh, through the years, and even
0: still, uh, you turn on the TV uh, on a Wednesday night, and you could see him on some weeks. What is that? What is it? I mean, to think about just his longevity in the business, and now he's at a place right now where he's in the number two company uh, in 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 the United States pro wrestling wise.
2: I think it's great. I mean, I'm proud of him. He, you know, he had a lot of setbacks in his life for various personal reasons, and, but he got it all under control. And he, he created, I mean, he was in a tough position. I mean, his dad is like one of the most famous wrestlers in history, a legitimate legend of entertainment and wrestling. And he kind of, he carved his own path and created his own legend with the gold dust and then and still doing it today. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and you he's know, like
0: 51? I don't know. Yeah, he's in he's lower lower fifties. Think like fifty-three, maybe. But but you know, got him, yeah. and 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 you got Cody too, and and with Cody, the youngest, uh, the son. Uh, I mean. I, I have to really uh, respect his balls uh, t- ballsiness to uh, you know go out and leave the WWE and then he, the way he embarked on his own tour kind of a guy for hire and the way he was able to uh, elevate his profile and get some really big matches, get hooked up with the guys like whether you like them or not they're 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 a big part of the wrestling business today, the young bucks and this whole elite thing with Kenny Omega and to eventually put in the all all out. All in, all these pay-per-views, and to eventually get this deal with AEW, with the Khan family, I mean, boy, that's a lot of moving and shaking The Daddy would be proud of because, uh, you know, not only we know Dusty from uh, his in-the-ring stuff, but uh, a lot, some people uh, who are maybe casual fans uh, really didn't know how much of a presence he was behind the scenes with the booking and the promoting.
2: Oh, definitely. I, if anything when it comes to Dustin, if you're listening, help me get a job with AEW. I can at least teach some guys how to throw a punch because some of those guys have a clueless when it comes to throwing a punch.
0: Okay, Mike. Yes. Bring it back. I just, I just I,
1: I, I just been listening. I just been listening. Uh, Bob, one of the names you mentioned, uh, WCW mentioned Cactus Jack and, uh, you know, Glenn made a reference to this, but, uh, you know, Cactus had a, a tendency to refer to you as Cookie. Any background to uh, where that came from?
2: No, I have no idea. You know, Terry Funk called me the cooker back in the day, and that's what most people call me now, people who are like, like, you know, that know me, they'll call me cooker, and Terry Funk started that. I don't know. I, Jack did that in a, a match I was wrestling Ricky Steamboat, and uh, I was punching steamboat and you can hear you know jack's doing the commentary with i think jim ross and he's yelling come on cookie come on cookie I just, this is something he came up with i even exchanged like uh messages with him through uh twitter not long ago because i'm part of the cac or the couch for alley club i'm the social media director and uh jack was uh donating money for his cameo appearance to the cac and during our exchange the last thing he says was have a good day cookie so <laughs>
1: So he remembers it. You will forever be cookie to Cactus Jack. Um, You know, you mentioned CAC and you're the the social media director. Uh, Social media seems to kind of become a big thing, obviously, you know, in professional wrestling. You know, what's your take on the the social media scene as far as wrestling goes now? Because, you know, I understand you still follow the current product. And obviously part of the current product is the social media scene.
2: Well, I don't follow it as much as I used to. You know, I haven't watched the actual wrestling shows on a weekly basis since Ronda Rossi left. And it's not because she left, even though I loved Ronda Rossi. I just lost interest. But I, I check out the clips on YouTube, or mo- most of the time I just look at the little thumbnail and I go, I don't want to watch that. Or if I click on it, I won't last long. But I think social media is the most toxic form of hate and uh, negativity that I've ever seen for the most part.
1: That's one way to look at it. Uh, <laughs> um, it is a big thing, though. I mean, like I said, a lot of the wrestlers use it. I mean, especially now with the, with the whole COVID thing and all that, a lot of guys are promoting themselves in, you know, the other upcoming matches using social media because it's really the only avenue they have. But, um, you know, outside of wrestling, you know, Glenn mentioned this as well, is that, uh, you know, you're a collector. You collect a lot of, uh, you know, wrestling memorabilia, but you also have an extensive evil Knievel collection, I understand.
2: Well, I don't anymore. Remember I mentioned that thing about being married and when I wasn't home, it was a great thing to be married because then when I got home, well, guess what? I'm not yeah, with yeah. my wife anymore for years and things tend to uh, be lost when those things happen. But yeah, I don't have the evil collection like I used to. If you look at my albums again on Facebook, I had one of the greatest evil can evil collections of all time. A lot of it is in the museum in Topeka, Kansas. Yes, the greatest museum of all time, the evil Knievel museum in Topeka, Kansas. And a lot of my stuff is there and I'm proud of that because I was friends with evil and the museum was something that he always wanted to have happen when he was alive. Unfortunately, it didn't happen then, but it happened now. And it's awesome.
1: What is, what was it about, you know, you said you're friends with him, but what was it about evil Knievel that, you know, made you want to collect? Cause I remember as a kid watching evil Knievel and you see him jump like the buses and the cars and well, he tried the snake river Canyon, but we all know how that went. But, uh, you know, what was it about Evil Knievel that you decided, hey, I want to collect all this?
2: Well, I just think, well, when I was a kid, he just stood out. I mean, you know, he wasn't a hippie. You know, when it came to bikers in that era, I mean, you had the Hells Angels as your representation, and Evil was the all American, red, white, and blue. He was a good looking guy. He had the movie star looks, he had the personality, he had the charisma, and he was doing something that nobody else in that era was doing. And it stood out. I mean, anytime some guy says, "Hey, I'm going to take this motorcycle and jump 20 cars, and maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't," and he does it with such a convol—what I don't know what you'd call it—a relaxed attitude. And I don't know, he—he was—he was the original custom-made from head to toe guy because everything he did was based on the theme of his gimmick. You know, he didn't just drive any car; he made—he drove custom cars, custom motorcycles with paint jobs that fit his theme. And he stood out to me, and I don't think anybody can truly explain why somebody clicks. I mean, there's a lot of Elvis fans, and you can say, "Well, he was a good singer," but why do you really love him? You know, who can answer it? But I've loved Elvis ever since I was five years old, and he was a great guy to me and my family. When I got to meet him, the last ten years of his life, and be friends with him, and he had the memorabilia. I mean, he was when you see somebody on TV and you think oh, that's the coolest guy I ever saw. And then you can go to the store, and every in the seventies, every aisle had something evil. You could go to the shoes; they had evil, evil shoes, pajamas, shirts. You know, in the toy section, they had every imaginable toy. They had books, puzzles, games, posters. You go to the checkout; they had trading cards. So it was everywhere. So it just caught your eye, and I don't know, I fell in love with it.
1: I remember the evil, Knievel stunt bike. You loaded him up, you pushed the button, he shot down the track, and he would do the jump. I remember that. I had that as a kid. I thought that was well, the greatest the toy round, on the planet. You actually wound it up.
2: You didn't push a button. If you push, well, button, you wound it up. Yeah, then
1: <laughs> you you wound it up, let it go. I'm 48 now. You know, the the memory's starting to fade a little bit, but yeah, you wound it up, let it go, and he went down the track and did the jump and everything.
2: And they just re-released it again uh, last
1: year. It's selling pretty good too. Now it's probably electronic. Kids, the kids don't have the energy no, to the wind things same. up anymore.
2: No, it's the exact same toy. They've re- they've re-released it several times. They did late and late in the late. 90s, and then they did again, <clears throat> excuse me, around 2005, and then 2009, <clears throat> and then again. I had to hit the 22. toy
1: store. I had to hit the toy store and let my son play with that thing.
2: I don't know if they're in toys or in stores, but you can buy them online at a place called California Creations, I think, it's the company that makes them, but they're really cool. My kid got me one for Father's Day. He knows how to make Dad happy.
1: There you go. There you go. Uh, so along with Evil Knievel, I understand you also collect uh, wrestling figures.
2: Well, I don't as many as I, I have a whole bunch, but I don't collect them like I used to. I mean, I'm almost 60 years old. What am I, an idiot? You know, it's amazing. When you get, the older you get, the things that you swear that you couldn't live without or things that you, you think are so important to you, the older you get, the less important they become for some weird reason. And I think I I learned that when I had the evil collection knife I vowed that I would never get rid of any of it because it was you know it was worth lots of money and it was the coolest stuff. I mean I had an actual replica of the motorcycle he used to jump the Harley Davidson, which are incredibly rare, and I had a life-size replica of his rocket that he used for the canyon jump, and a lot of other cool stuff. But when I had to lose all that, I, you realize the things you find or think are so important to you, and they may be, but once you learn that you can live without him uh, I don't know the only thing really important to me now is my dog and unfortunately he's eight years old so oh seven years old sorry he's looking at me funny go hey dummy I'm seven years old
1: <laughs> now you he mentioned said, you know you're no Russian <laughs> you mentioned your involvement with the qualifier Holly club uh, October 3rd they're having uh, a colleague uh virtual show for to help raise the money on that uh, what can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with the call for I how long have you been a member and, you know, kind of, you know, let our listeners know more about it and kind of maybe, you know, get some more memberships.
2: Yeah. Well, I've been a member for many years and I actually think, I mean, it's been around for 55 plus years and yes, they're doing that i I'm supposed to be part of that. I don't want to be because I don't like doing that kind of stuff, but Brian Blair is one of my best friends and I was asked. And so rather than say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it and look like a fool, but, it's it's a they're they're trying to raise you know extra money this year because the the reunion which is where they raise most of their money was canceled because of the stupid virus, and uh, but the Cali for Alley Club is a very important thing. It's been around like I said for 55 plus years. I personally think that every wrestling school in the country should require their students to join the Cali for Alley Club, just like buying a pair of boots, because you give them back to the business when you start, and you never know when you're going to need them down the road because they help wrestlers who are falling on hard times, whether it's self-inflicted hard times or just, you know, divorce, whatever happens, health issues. And the more members we have, obviously, the more people we can help and the more money we can help them with. So it's important. I think every wrestling fan should join because it's not just for wrestlers and it's a great organization.
1: Now, before we, we wrap this up and I hand the mic over to Glenn, um, With the advent of social media and YouTube and everything, a lot of your you know a lot of footage of your matches and your stuff in WCW is now readily available. Uh, The network, you know, you're on the WWE network. A lot of your stuff and all that. What is something you want the fans who are now who are now learning about you and discovering your work and all that? What's something you want them to remember you for, or something you want them to look for? I don't know.
2: I would just like them to see a guy who. You know I wasn't as dedicated as i should have been to the outside of the ring aspect i used to think i i was okay in the ring and i gave it my best but i wasn't dedicated to what you should do outside of the ring which is the working out and dieting and different things like that but if you ever see me you know that i was a guy who loved the business still loved the business loved what i was doing hate the word jobber and enhancement talent i consider myself a pro wrestler Maybe I wasn't the big star, but everybody has a position in the business. There has to be a first match, second match, last match, main event. Not everybody can be there. In fact, very few people in the grand scheme of professional wrestling history were ever stars, you know, and even less than those were superstars. And even less than that are legends. So just to be part of the business for me was fantastic. So if anybody watches and go, hey, a guy had a good punch, he had a decent punch whatever, just know that I loved what I was doing. And... I don't know. To me, that's very important to know.
1: (laughs) All right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the mic back over to you for the final moments of the show.
2: All right, we're going to wrap things up this week on
0: Wrestling Memories Then and Now. It was a fun, fast-paced hour talking with Bob Cook. Uh, We forgot to mention one thing about Bob, and uh, it's something that Bob and I have in common. We uh, had both had the awesome experience at different arenas of watching Pink in concert.
2: Oh, I love Pink.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, you saw, where did where did you see, happen to see her in concert? Uh,
2: in Orlando, wherever, I don't know what the name of the arena is, wherever the Orlando Magic play. Oh, My okay. Friend and I went and saw, probably was it like two years ago now, saw her. Fantastic place was sold out. I mean, yeah, it was, you know, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of today's music, but for some reason I've always liked her and, Got a couple of her really good concerts on Blu-ray from a few years ago when she was in Phenomenal shape, which is my favorite version of Pink, by the way, because I'm superficial. Yes, I admit it, (laughs) but I just think she's fantastic. She's one of the greatest performers of all time when it comes to that form of entertainment. Yes, yes, yes.
0: My wife and I uh, saw her in Fargo. She actually got a chance to see her twice, man. It's, uh was a fun show, always just entertaining. You don't have to be, you know, for, for some who may not know all the songs, it's not not about that. It's about going in and seeing the full performance. And she definitely is someone that gives you uh, your money's worth, especially uh, in in this day and age with concert prices being what they were before this COVID business.
2: Yeah, I uh... I would definitely go see her again and I had vowed to never go see anyone else because no matter what I'd be disappointed because like ah it wasn't as good as, as good as pink so why bother
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I I I I I don't, I don't apply that logic I before the the covid thing I was, every year I it seemed like I was going to every concert uh, just filling out this uh list of of guys and artists gals and artists that I wanted to see and now it's the size of a a post it note but now there's no other options we got to sit and watch it at home now and enjoy it
2: yeah, I've never been a big fan of live music anyways. It's just a select few. I've never been a big concert guy. But again, Pink was always someone I'd wanted to see, and I got to. And there's very few I would even pay to see now. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing U2, Pearl Jam. I can't offhand think of anybody else. Had a chance Paul McCartney, maybe. Had a chance to see uh, Pearl
0: Jam. Uh, we were on a, on a vacation trip. Uh, said Had a chance to see him in, at Wrigley Field in Chicago.
2: Wow. Yeah, that was a... Pretty... Yeah, either Pearl Jam or Eddie Vedder, whichever happened.
0: Yeah, I, I and you think that once things, uh, if things get finally get rolling and moving, there's going to be some shows and some tours that are going to be fun, and I think Pearl Jam will probably uh, be at the front of the line for shows because they have still have a, a current record to push, so you got to get it out there and, of course, play all the good stuff that we
2: come to see. Yeah, definitely. But again, it's not not a long list of people I'd pay to see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you, Bob Cook. Also, I want to thank uh, the Grizzle Vet,
0: Mike McCurdy, for uh, hanging around here on this edition of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. We don't only just talk about pro wrestling, we talk about music, life, all that stuff. But thank you uh, to both Mike and Bob. I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now. Thank you, guys. Take care and uh, enjoy